This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching from the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're wrapping up chapter 22. It's nice to have something complex distilled down to something simple. Give it to me in a nutshell, you might say, with the idea being that the essentials have been extracted and presented in a clear and concise way. Jesus does that for the Pharisees in today's passage. They've made life and living by the law an impossibly complex task. Then, almost without knowing it, they get God's law in a nutshell. All the complexity boiled down into a twofold strategy for spiritual growth. It was true then, and it's true today. These are words to live by. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. So find your places in Matthew 22, starting verse 34, and we're going to read to verse 46. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked them a question, testing him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. So here it is, church, his rebuke to hypocritical hopefuls. And the reason I'm calling the Pharisees hypocritical hopefuls is because all throughout the Gospel of Matthew, the author tells us the Pharisees were hypocrites. They promoted a hypocritical religion, a religion based on the outside only that left the heart untouched. We will mature spiritually. First of all, when we obey Christ's double commandment. There's a double commandment here. The first or the greatest of all the commands, and the second, he says, and they're all related. It's more than just one and two. They're, they're, they're connected somehow, and we'll explain that. Now, the, the, the Pharisees then took the Word of God, the, the simplicity of the Word of God, and they complicated things and created some 613 commandments. Some of these commandments, according to that system, were negative. Think the, the thou shalt not commandments. Others were positive. Thou shalt the, the problem is that not everybody agreed. Not all of the Pharisees agreed with which ones are positive, which ones were negative. So the strategy of this guy here, this scribe, this lawyer, was to get Jesus Christ to rank the commandments. And as soon as he did that, immediately he would say, but the other group says that that one is negative. Or the other group says that one is positive and immediately create tension and cause that group to be even more hostile to Christ. Now, according to Mark 12... Describing the same scene, verses 29 to 30, Jesus answered that question by paraphrasing a portion of the Old Testament that we know as the Shema. You may have heard that word before. It means to hear in Hebrew. 
also means to obey. And the reason that that portion is called the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 5, is because it starts with that verb, Hear, O Israel. Those two verses read like this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. So here is Jesus answering that question by paraphrasing that and saying, this is the first commandment. This is the first, the foremost commandment, the great commandment here. Now, the reason he did that, church, is because the Shema, this commandment here, was given to the second generation of people who left Egypt to go to the promised land, way back in the book of Exodus. That first generation of people who left Egypt all died in the wilderness. You may remember that story. They were supposed to spend only a few days there, but they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness because of their rebellion, except two men, Joshua and Caleb. All of them died in the wilderness. Now, here's the second generation, and they needed to avoid making the same mistakes that their parents did in the wilderness. Now, which one was the biggest mistake that they made in the wilderness? As soon as they got out of Egypt, you will remember that Moses went to the mountain to hear from God and bring back the words of God to the people. But they said, well, he's taking way too long. Let's fashion for us here a God according to our own desires. Let's come up with a golden calf and attribute to that golden calf our deliverance from Egypt which prompted the wrath of God. And as a result of that and other steps of disobedience, they stayed in the wilderness longer than they should have. And now the second generation, I was about to take possession of the land, so therefore they needed to learn how to worship God in His terms. Not in their own terms, you see. Nothing changed in human nature, church. We hear this all the time. People say, I worship God in my own terms. I love God. I just don't like churches. Or, oh, I love Jesus. I just don't like his followers. Or, Christ, please save me from your followers type of a thing. But no, what God is instructing that generation that left Egypt in Christ is now confirming that commandment is that we are supposed to love God. We're supposed to do everything we do for God because of our deep love for Him that engages the entirety of our being. Mind, soul, spirit, and strength. See, you can't worship God in any other way. There's no way we can worship God properly by just engaging the body, which was the, 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 the religion of the Pharisees. Focus on the outside. Leave the heart untouched. Observe a set of rules here that we determine, and then you will be okay. Well, Christ confronted that head on and said, no, if the heart is untouched, you are not converted. If your heart is untouched, you do not belong to the kingdom of heaven. The only one way you can make it to the kingdom of heaven is we have to be brought to the kingdom by the grace of God through faith. And when that happens, our heart is transformed. Unless the heart is transformed, there is no true devotion to God. And people focus this all the time still today. I guess it's human nature. We, we try to focus on the outside, clean up the language type of a thing. Dress a little better and God will accept you. Or use a different vocabulary. No, unless the heart is transformed, nothing matters. Because when the heart is transformed, the change is from the inside out. But the point that Jesus is teaching them and teaching us today is that God can only be worshipped properly when we engage the mind, the soul, and the heart, the entirety of our being, He will not take any worship in the form of bowing down to images. But not only that, you can't worship God properly by imitating the world or, or by dictating your own terms. People do this all the time, even believers. 
We'll say, well, this part of the Bible I'll take, the other part I'm not going to take. I'm going to worship God in my own terms. Well, you can't do that according to Christ because God is invisible. He is infinite. He is eternal and immortal. People can only express true devotion to Him by engaging, again, your material and your immaterial part. You love Him with your soul. You love Him with your heart and with your mind, which means you engage the mind. You understand biblical doctrine you read about Him in the Word of God. You listen to a preacher talk about the attributes of God. And that goes right into your mind, goes right into your heart. And you express your love and your devotion to Him by responding to His attributes. And, and to responding to His commands. To hear, O Israel. He says, hear, obey, O Israel. Now, by including this exchange between Jesus and this scribe, both Matthew and Mark clarify that God still, to this day, expects unconditional devotion from His people. The type of devotion that engages everything that we have. We're to serve Him, we're to love Him with everything we have. Our talents, our time, our gifts, our minds, our emotion. We submit everything to Him. There's no other way to follow Christ. Now, this is not a love that is romanticized. We live in an over-romanticized culture. But we reject that from the culture and we embrace what the Lord says. So this is not a love that is over-romanticized. This is not an emotionalism type of love, the Jesus is my boyfriend type of a deal, or Jesus is cute, or Jesus is the genie that he exists in order to make me happy, to give me everything that I desire, to give me everything that I want. No, that is not what the Bible teaches, or, or, or the Hallmark Channel kind of a love. No, this is a, a deep love that can only be expressed by people who have been first loved by Him. Because the Bible says we only love because He first loved us. So Jesus expects believers, you and me, to love Him with a Shema type of love. A love so intense that it surpasses everything. And it's a decision of the heart and of the mind. This is not based on feelings. It's a decision that you make. For example, in Matthew 10, verse 37, Jesus says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Wow, these are shocking words, church. When, when we hear this, we say, come again? You mean to say that Jesus Christ expects higher loyalty than my family bonds? No, church, I'm not saying this. Jesus is saying this. And therefore, we must obey. And what he means by that is he, he, he doesn't want to divide any families because in Matthew 15, verse 5, he affirms the command for us to honor father and mother. What he's saying is this. Only God can demand a loyalty higher than family bonds. Only God can do that because he's the creator of all things. He is the one who put you in your family. He is the one who has caused you to be born at this time in this particular family. So in other words, he receives our love first and foremost. He utters these words because he is one with the Father. And therefore, if we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, we are to love him more than father, mother, son, or daughter, or siblings. And again, what that means is that if we are ever placed in a difficult position to choose between family relationships or our love for Christ, our love for Christ must prevail because we must love Him with all our mind, soul, and all our strength. Now, take a look at the second commandment. And He says, well, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Well, let's, let's explain what that means because there's a lot of misunderstanding about that. What Jesus is doing here, He is quoting from Leviticus 19 verse 18. Again, the Bible that the Pharisees claim to be experts on. Those are the books of Moses. 
And Jesus, therefore, quotes to them from that portion of Scripture. And, and that portion reads this, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And again, the reason why he includes that I am the Lord at the end is because those are related. Now, you will not be able to love others like Christ expects you to love others unless you love God first with all your heart, mind, and soul. There's no way to do one without the other. So if we love Him with all our heart, mind, and soul, then we're ready to apply this and love others like we love ourselves. Now, when we love our fellow human being like we love ourselves, we will preserve their life, we will preserve their health, their property, their reputation, and their well-being. Why, church? Because we do that to us. We love ourselves enough to take care of our own selves. And what the Bible says, you are supposed to love others with that kind of love. In other words, take care of other people like you would yourself. Therefore, you will not murder. You will not steal. But more than that, you will not slander. You will not start the gossip mill. Or you will not bear false witness against anyone. You will not hold a grudge. And you will be quick to forgive. You will be quicker even to, to presume the innocence of the person you're accusing. Why? Because that's how you love yourself. Now, church, let me ask you this. Does that come naturally for us? Of course not. Why would the Bible instruct us over and over again to do that? Because it's not natural. It's not the inclination of our hearts to do that. In other words, you will never accidentally love someone like you love yourself. So Jesus therefore clarifies that his double commandment here summarizes all the law in the books of prophecy here in the Old Testament. It says, all of the commandments are summarized in these two. You love God with all your mind, heart, and your soul, and you love others like you love yourself. Now, let me talk to you about the second point of our double strategy here. The first one was to obey his double commandment because that's what he teaches us here. But in the remainder of that scene, he teaches us to understand Christ's dual nature. So when Christ asked them, well, let me ask you a simple question. You've been asking me questions all of this time. Let me ask you a simple question based on something you claim to know, namely the books of the Bible. What about the Christ? He asks them. And they fumbled with that. They had no idea. They focused on one aspect of the identity of Christ and missed the other. They focused on the humanity of Jesus Christ when they said, well, he's the son of David. So they knew that the Messiah would be from the line of David. They just missed the fact that all fullness of deity dwells in him in bodily form. By the way, that's a converted Pharisee that wrote, that wrote this, Paul, in Colossians 2 verse 9. And Jesus quotes Psalm 110 verse 1 to them, the most messianic of all the Psalms. And by doing this, he's teaching them a very important doctrine that we need to understand. So write this down, okay? This is a technical term that I'm going to give to you, but it's important for you to know. I don't mean this to be a, less, a seminary class, but you need to understand this. The term is called the hypostatic union. Hypostatic union. That talks about the fact that Jesus is both God and man at the same time. Fully human, fully divine, United in the same person. He shares the essence, the same essence with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, and yet he is fully human. The Bible says it very clearly. He is the incarnate word in John 1 verse 14, through whom and by whom everything was created. Jesus is our great God and Savior, Paul tells us in Titus 2 verse 13. So when we celebrate Christmas, we're not celebrating the beginning of the existence of Christ. I hope you understand that because Jesus already existed. He has always existed from eternity past and will continue to exist into eternity future. 
Now, he will always be the God-man. He has a body now, and his body is in heaven because the disciples saw that body going up to heaven. That's in the book of Acts. He has a glorified, resurrected body. And in order to tabernacle among us, like the Bible says, in order to come and live with us, in order to die on a cross, he had to be human because you cannot nail a spirit on a cross. Paul also says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, and that when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, Galatians 4, verse 4, which means there was a miraculous birth. The Bible is so clear that Jesus Christ was not born out of the union of Joseph and Mary, that the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, and then she was found pregnant. Otherwise, Jesus would have inherited the sin nature of his earthly parents and would not have qualified to die on a cross for sinners. The Pharisee persecutor turned apostle. Paul teaches us also that Jesus, who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So that's the dual nature of Jesus Christ. And church, why is that important for us to know? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because it's very important for us to know who Jesus is. Because the question that Christ asks here at the end of this scene to the Pharisees, what do you think about the Christ? That is the most important question that you'll ever answer. So you need to have that clear in your hearts and in your minds. And so do I in order to be able to not only tell others who Jesus is, but in order to have confidence in our Savior and to know who He is. So I'm going to give you five reasons why We need to have a firm grasp on this particular doctrine here, the dual nature of Jesus Christ. Number one, if Christ were anything less than fully human, he could not have paid for the penalty for our sins on the cross. If Jesus was anything but fully human, he could not have gone to the cross. Why? Because the Bible says in Hebrews 9 verse 22 that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. See, in order for your sin and mine to be atoned for, somebody had to die. And spilled his blood, the blood of animals that the Jewish sacrifice system represents, could not accomplish that. They only pointed to the final sacrifice on the cross. Why? Because the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, verse 4, that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And we learn from John 1, verse 29, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, all of these sacrificial ceremonies before Christ all pointed to him. They could not take away the sins of the world. Because according to Hebrews 9, verse 12, Jesus, through his own blood, entered the holy place once and for all, which means that there's no more need to keep doing that, because he, through his own blood, entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Reason number two why we need to understand the dual nature of Christ is that if Christ had not visited humanity in flesh and blood, he could not have sympathized with our weaknesses. Because the Bible says, Hebrews 4 verse 15, he is our sympathetic high priest. He was tempted just like we are, and yet without sin. Now we read about the temptation of Christ here. Satan tempted him in the wilderness, Matthew 4. Jesus could never have sinned because he did not have a sinful nature. And yet, he was tempted just like we are, and yet without sin. Therefore, he sympathizes with our weaknesses. So in reality, church, Jesus is the only person who can truly say to you, I know how you feel. Because he has experienced affliction. He has been betrayed by his friends. He has suffered agony, spiritual agony, physical agony. He, therefore, is the only one who can identify with you and me. 
He is our sympathetic high priest. Now, number three, if Jesus were not human, he could never mediate between God and man. He could not be the mediator between us and God because 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 says that there is one God and one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. Only one. Mary is not the mediator. Saints are not the mediator between. You can't, you shouldn't be praying to other saints. Mary never heard a prayer from anybody. Did you, did you know that? Because she's not a mediatrix between God and man. Jesus Christ is the only one. I've heard people say this more than once to me. Oh, nature connects me to God. Or music connects me to God. No, according to the Bible, there's only one way to get to the Father, and that's Jesus Christ. So I understand what people mean by that. They enjoy nature. They, they enjoy music. Those are gifts from God. But they should never take the place of connecting you with the Father because Jesus is the only way to the Father, only one mediator between God and man. Now, people usually don't have a problem understanding the humanity of Christ. It's uh, His divinity that people have trouble with. So let me give you a reason number four why we need to understand clearly the dual nature of Christ. And I'm talking about His divinity now. Because if Christ were anything less than fully God, if He even for a second ceased to be God, our salvation would be an illusion. No one other than the giver of life can conquer death. See, people do not rise spontaneously from the dead. Only the God-man can do that. That's a prerogative of the God-man. Now, Paul explains, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 through 19. What he's saying is this. If Christ is not God, He could not have raised from the dead, and therefore our faith is vain if He's not God, because we endure affliction. And a gathering here on a Sunday morning would have been a tremendous waste of time and energy and resources. If Christ is not God. And the last one here, number, reason number five, if Jesus were not equal with the Father. Again, He is not less than the Father. He is equal with the Father and equal with the Holy Spirit. If, it were not, if this were not the case, you could not believe your Bible. Because that's what the Bible teaches. For example, the author of Hebrews affirms that Jesus is the radiance of His glory, talking about the glory of the Father, and the exact representation of His nature. See, not a carbon copy. The exact representation of the nature of the Father, and He upholds all things by the word of His power. Hebrews 1 verse 3. So church, when you read about Jesus Christ, you are contemplating God Himself. These guys here, the Pharisees, were looking God in the eyes and they were denying His divinity. Talk about short-sightedness or, or, or spiritual blindness. These guys were interacting with Jesus Christ. They were amazed, the Bible says. And yet, many of them failed to recognize Jesus Christ as the God-man, the Messiah, the Christ who came to save people from their sins and to give people newness of life. In Jesus Christ, perfect humanity and divinity converge. That's the hypostatic union. When you see Him, you see the Father. He said it Himself. John 14, verse 9. Now, we see Him clearly from the pages of the Bible. We shouldn't expect to have visions of Christ, but we see Him clearly in the pages of the Bible. 
But tragically, we see here some guys that interacted with him and failed to understand his dual nature. The million-dollar question, if you will, is at the end of this scene here, what do you think about the Christ? That question resonates throughout the years, along with the first time Jesus asked a similar question. By the way, this is not the first time Jesus is asking people to come up with an answer about this basic question. Matthew 16, verse 15, he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? So the same question here is, what do you think about the Christ? That question, church, confronts people because the answer reveals the condition of their hearts. The answer to that question will reveal the condition of your heart and whether or not you are in the kingdom or outside of the kingdom. No one can ignore this question. And again, no one will be neutral to that question. Either they will mock at Christ and they will, which is tragic because if they die in that state, they will go to hell forever and ever. Or they will acknowledge Jesus Christ for who he is and bow their knees to him and come to faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone, everyone will have to face him one day, either as savior and rewarder or as judge and executioner. That is why the Bible pleads so clearly in Hebrews 3 verse 1, consider Jesus the apostle and the high priest of our confession. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people, just like you, to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast was provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth with Grace.